This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. And so when I think about the impact that ethics can make, it's moving us from where we used to be with issues of um, ethical dilemmas to thinking about how to stave off those sorts of ethics dilemmas, particularly at the bedside. And now as we're better understanding that every organizational dysfunction is what leads to clinical ethics dynamics. It's not unusual for tough choice decisions to be made in healthcare. In those situations, what help can patients, their families, or the clinical team receive? Healthcare ethics committees and healthcare ethics consultants provide guidance to patients, their families, and clinicians in hospitals and healthcare delivery sites across the United States and throughout the world. According to the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities, the goal of ethics consultation is to improve healthcare outcomes through the identification, analysis, and resolution of ethical issues in healthcare institutions. How might better access to these resources be made more available? How might their impact be assessed? In this first episode of a two-part series, our guests explore the impact that ethics consultation has in the continuum of care and dive deeper into just how big of an impact this service can have in clinical care. Our guests in this episode include Dr. Ellen Fox, president of Fox Ethics Consulting, and a bioethics consultant, educator, researcher, and policymaker. Mary Homan, Southwest Division Vice President of Theology and Ethics for Common Spirit Health. And Mark Repenchek, Vice President of Ethics and Church Relations for Ascension. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Ellen, can you share with our listeners what your research and consulting services are about? The major study I did uh, first was more than 20 years ago, actually. We collected data from 1999 to 2000, and that was um, a national study called Ethics Consultation in U.S. Hospitals, where we really were the first to gather baseline data in a random sample of all U.S. hospitals. And um, that study has really been very widely cited. It actually was uh, the number one most cited article in the American Journal of Bioethics in the last 20 years. So recently, we just completed a study, which was uh, a similar study, but much broader. And we're going to be publishing a total of uh, seven or eight articles from that study, the first three have already been published, and we're looking at questions like how have uh, practices changed in hospitals since the first study in the last 20 years? Um, what are the opinions of ethics practitioners um, related to ethics programs and services? Um, and to what extent do ethics consultation practitioners adhere to uh ASBH standards. So that's some of the questions we're going to be answering. How has ethics work changed over time? I have learned a lot about healthcare ethics programs, um, both through my research on U.S. hospitals, especially the the major national survey that we just published, um, and also through my work as a consultant, because I primarily consult with ethics programs in healthcare organizations. So Um, I would say there are a lot of different models out there for ethics programs and services, 
and there really isn't much in the way of um, empirical research on what types of programs are most effective. But that said, um, I I would say that in my experience, um, I can make some observations, and that is, um, for example, in the uh, in I would say the most sophisticated programs, the real leaders in the field, what I see is that they are emphasizing systems thinking in their approach to ethics. They are not um, they are not relying on the traditional ethics committee model, which has not changed much in over thirty years and is frankly I think outdated um, at this point. Instead, they are using what I would call a systems-level programmatic approach. Um, They're applying the same management techniques that have been proven effective in other fields um, and applying them to to managing ethics in healthcare organizations. So, for example, um, they're applying principles of continuous quality improvement and performance measurement, and they're using strategies for organizational change that have been demonstrated to be effective in the business world. And they are, um, they're integrating, um, their programs into the organization's culture, uh, and throughout the many, many formal and informal systems and microsystems that make up the culture of an organization. So they're not silos, they're well integrated. And, um, and I guess the final thing I would say is that they are not, um, they, they're not merely responding to requests for consultation or from other people asking them to do things. Instead, they are proactively scanning the organizational landscape. They are focusing their energies on um, specific areas where improvement is needed in that organization. And so ultimately, they're seeing uh, measurable results. Mark, how about you? You know, it was the evolution of a change in our clinical model, right? Uh, clinical ethics consultation model, right, wrong, or indifferent, that actually has led to a change in our thinking around the what constitutes an integrated ethics service, right? Meaning, our traditional model of clinical ethics consultation was deploy the ethicist, right? That shifted to the idea of empower and engage, right? So whatever you call them, but our ethics committees are not a a group that are going to gather on a monthly basis and just have a nice conversation. It's how to empower and engage those committee members to do the work at an appropriate level to provide a type of clinical consultation that is perfectly acceptable, should be in place, and then improve upon. Uh, relative to their roles. I remember going back to a number of our ethics committees at my first site, and I thought, gosh, this is really exciting conversation. People are gathered every month to discuss complex cases. And I realized pretty quickly it was one person who was discussing his work, good work, don't get me wrong, but it's basically kind of a peer review process. That's what it was. And then we'd leave, the meeting would adjourn, and nothing happened as a result. Um, it was essentially a educational opportunity, all well and good. But that shift became to say, wait a minute, let's think about the membership that we have here. 
do we have the right members? Are they integrated into areas where, again, using metrics, we know where our complex cases should come from? Do we have membership there? Are our members actually doing some type of consultation work? Are we reviewing that work as a committee and that the committee as a whole is called upon such that the right persons are placed in the right space at the right time to do the right type of work that they are trained for so that the ethicist then is operating at the highest level of their own competency, highest and best use. And again, it goes back to the we piece. So that redesigning of the ethics committee also comes with it, corresponding metrics, corresponding um, processes that need to be tracked in order to ensure that that is now a high quality endeavor can be maintained consistently over time. And uh, when delivering on that for new membership, there's a clear criteria and expectations around what it is that one is going to do. How should ethics committees and ethicists be thinking about their work moving forward? Kevin, my mind is going into two places. Uh, one is instead of us being islands onto ourselves and our own fiefdom <laughs> in our own silos, um, we actually have begun to see the necessity. Um, or past begun, but implementing infrastructure, formal charters, uh, reporting relationships and infrastructure that ensures that our ethics community operates as a community, right? So that it's shared models of learning so that when one issue is faced in one area, it's not isolated nor remains in one area. We all can, can tap into the depth and breadth of that while creating infrastructure to not have to replicate that. Because all of what you're talking about, Kevin, in my mind, is about shifting from reactive to proactive. And in order to get at these elements, you have to have pieces in place that are not just going to continually react to what's new. There has to be space to be able to build so that the next time that that issue arises, there is that infrastructure to lean into. Mary, how about you? You know, what we need to be doing in the ambulatory setting, especially um, in thinking about um, having conversations with persons who have life-limiting conditions. Um, I, I'm, I'm struck when I look at uh, the daily census at a number of facilities or when I've been um, called by other colleagues of, of persons who just have exceedingly long lengths of stay. Um, and, and oftentimes it's because there is not a, a, a discharge option. Um, so they're in the hospital. We, they yeah. don't need inpatient care. Now, some of that could have been staved off if that person had, um, you know, uh, done a pulse, the physician orders for life-sustaining treatment, you know, where maybe they have um, COPD or CHF or, you know, have had a number of readmission, hospital readmissions, um, you know, where they say, I, you know, I don't, I don't want this aggressive treatment. Um, and these are the persons Right, we know this from comorbidities with COVID, who are developing these really profound complications, are, you know, receiving critical care for long um, lengths of time. The other issue is is that, um, you know, not everybody's insurance uh, will provide for skilled nursing, um, for long term acute hospitalizations, and and so this is where when we think about ethics beyond the hospital setting or even the ambulatory clinic setting is, is how do we um, use what we know to move and change policy? You know, at what point do we start having conversations for insurance companies that, you know, if, if, if you're willing to cover um, a population 
that is most likely going to need skilled nursing or long-term acute care because of their chronic conditions, you know, how, how do we make that affordable for people? And so how do we then take, if this is a problem on the inpatient setting, then how are we engaging in the outpatient in the community to say, to, to create more opportunities for justice? And I think that ethics has, sh- has shown a light on health disparities. Ellen, how about you? It's often worth doing a systematic assessment of your current program activities. Now, most programs I work with think they have a really good idea of what's going on in their organization and their system ethics-wise, but they really don't. Um, I would say without exception, in fact, that every time I have been asked to conduct an ethics program assessment and an organizational assessment relating to ethics, program leaders are, at least to some extent, surprised by the results. So it's a valuable exercise. And the other suggestion that comes to mind is um, to develop a strategic plan for your ethics program. Now, I can almost hear the groans in the audience from when I mentioned strategic plan. I know some people may have had a negative experience with strategic planning, or they think it's a waste of time. This is common. Um, but in my experience, when it is done well, it is absolutely invaluable to a healthcare ethics program, and it can dramatically increase the program's effectiveness. It really helps to think critically about not only your mission and goals, as we've already um, alluded to, but also um, things like what is your program's clientele? That may seem obvious, but maybe not. Um, Who is it your program serves? Is it frontline staff? Is it all staff? Is it patients and families? Are you serving them directly or only mostly indirectly? Is it leadership? Asking critical questions like these um, can be really eye-opening and can make a huge difference in terms of impact. We've done some of this work um, within Ascension, and I would call them kind of building blocks or foundational elements, and where we start is key relationships. So it helps us to think about maybe different um, contexts. So in a clinical context, what are some of those key relationships? Well, you and I both know that it's absolutely critical to develop a key relationship with the CMO. It's absolutely critical to develop a key relationship with the CNO. Great. So now maybe those are two key starting points. But in order to understand the depth and breadth of the organization, we have to be able to begin to think about roles that are outside of that acute care setting, right? So still staying maybe in the clinical context, but what are those key roles that are going to look at developing a relationship with the lead strategist for the ambulatory surgery uh, surgery initiative or uh, population health initiative? Or if you want to get really into the organizational context, the strategy officer, where are they thinking? They're three, five, seven, 10 years ahead of where the organization is currently at. Where are we headed? Where are we going as an organization? Developing that key relationship so that you're in dialogue with those persons places you in the context of where the organization is going to go. So I would say it's a both and. Um, And again, that foundational element is building key relationships. Mark, speaking of relationships outside of acute care, can you talk about what this looks like within your work in organizational ethics? Um, The majority of my work now is involved in 
collaborations partnership and setting up infrastructure to ensure that when we are reaching out to potential partners, that we are very clear about what commitments we are going to ask of those partners relative to who we say we are. It involves integration into uh, population health models. Um, who are our partners? Why are, there, why are they going to be our partners? It's involvement in investment strategies, technology needs, um, data governance, data analytics, um, a number of areas that actually speak to what I think the field is kind of getting its arms around in terms of organizational ethics. How do we evaluate the processes that we have for partnerships? Um, service delivery. What are our commitments to this organization that we are going to deliver on, um, not just in the clinical world, but in the organizational realm, um, in the context of partnering with um, our leaders in areas of church relations and ecclesial relations. Um, all of these dimensions of our work continue to expand and have influence as we move toward better models of integration. The last piece that I'll share is that too was an evolution of thought. The first thing we did in the organizational realm as well, deploy the ethicist, right? Let's have someone sitting at this table and this table and in all these different space, whether it's with our data analytics folks or population health or partnerships, new ventures. And we started to say, wait a minute, we're making the same mistake in our words, mistake that we made in the clinical world, thinking we can do all this on our own. If we're going to deploy interdisciplinary committees of persons gathered on a monthly basis with appropriate education, scope, and responsibility, maybe we need to think about our partners in the organizational realm in the same way. What would it look like to provide the proper education, proper um, scope and definition around their roles and their collaboration so that they can do some of the important work on asking and framing the right questions to which then we can be utilized, again, highest and best resource once that, once that infrastructure is built. Can you give an example of what that infrastructure might look like? Some of the leaders that we have begun to develop tools for to assess values compatibility, for example, early iterations of that tool probably comes as no surprise to you or any of the listeners uh, that they were focused on procedures, right? We kind of went back to that model of here's what we know shouldn't be done by any partner that we're going to partner with, right? And we started to back away from that and said, wow, that important, absolutely. But boy, is that a kind of a, a, a minimal threshold? What would it look like to actually ask questions around, well, what are your organizational approaches to addressing healthcare disparities? What are your organizational approaches to addressing systemic racism? What are your organizational approaches to addressing? And the list goes on. We started to build that into the tools and in collaboration with the persons who are actually way at the front of some of our strategy work, looking at who our partners are going to be. Before we're at the point of saying, okay, here's an LOI, now can you quote bless the work that's done? Where that shifted conversations, Kevin, is I was struck by a conversation that we were having with a potential partner led by a, par uh, a, collaborative, a collaborative partner in mission integration to solely drive this work around values compatibility with the executive team asking these types of questions and the partner stopped in their tracks, you know, uh, verbally and just said, I've never thought about these questions. 
Our organization has never thought about these questions. You've given me one more reason why I want to be a part of this organization. And to me, it was not so much in the answer he was or wasn't able to give, but in the fact that the way in which those questions were framed well before anyone was signing on the dotted line was a distinctive factor or a differentiator in the normal partnership conversations that go on. Important risk analytics being done, important due diligence in a number of spaces, but this was a shift. And that story to me just speaks to how it's not only the influence that we can have on potential partners, but the importance of asking those questions when people are expecting a due diligence process to go a particular way. And this kind of catches them off guard, asking much bigger questions around the values alignment. Ellen, what should leaders of ethics programs be focusing on moving forward? Well, one thing I've learned is that to be successful, uh, you have to figure out how to align the goals and priorities of the ethics program with the broader goals and priorities of the organization and particularly the organization's leadership. You know, it's not uncommon for me to hear ethics program managers lament how their organization leaders just don't get it, meaning they don't get ethics, they don't value ethics, they don't think ethics is important. Um, And this often occurs when the manager of the ethics program has not quite figured out um, how best to align the goals um, of the program with the things that matter to leadership, or at least not uh, how to best communicate um, about how their program advances the organization's goals. So, for example, um, ethics programs uh, goals can be framed in a variety of different ways. Um, you can frame them in terms of healthcare quality, um, and ethics is a part of healthcare quality. Or a very different approach: if your organization is more focused on risk avoidance, you can frame a lot of ethics work around avoiding the negative, avoiding the bad outcomes. Or some organizations may be, uh, the culture of the organization may be focused on uh, pockets of organizational excellence, and maybe they want a flagship program, and they want their ethics program to be really top-notch. That Then you would focus on somewhat different things in terms of how you communicate with leadership. Let me give you an example um, of how you might think like a leader in thinking about cost um, relative to an ethics program or efficiency. Um, So imagine you have a high, your hospital has a very high volume consult service. Maybe you're doing hundreds of consults a year. And you may be tempted to keep going back to leadership and ask, to ask for more staff to fund more people for the program to do more and more consults. And in other words, to do even more of what you're already doing. Um, But in a resource-constrained environment, you might take a different approach. You might 
first try demonstrating to leadership how you can use your resources more efficiently, or at least that you are thinking in those terms, um, so as to maximize your impact for a given investment. Um, And ethics consultation is a very resource-intensive activity um, that does not necessarily have a tremendous impact beyond those people that are immediately involved in a consult. Is it possible that some of the hours devoted to ethics consultation might be used more effectively in a different way? In my experience, ethics program leaders um, aren't always very skilled at talking with executive leadership in a way that maximizes their chance of success and support from leadership. Um, And (laughs) I had to learn myself the hard way about this over many years. So I, uh, back when I was at the uh, VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, I had a uh, boss named uh, John Perlman, who was the Undersecretary for Health, And he was giving me my annual feedback, and he said something about how I should learn um, how to talk uh, like a leader uh, or or like a manager, administrator. And um, so I literally read books on business and focused on what, what are the differences in terms of the way I would talk about something and the way it's talked about in you know, by healthcare administrators. And I learned literally the language. How should ethics services think about the impact they have? It's essential to have a clear vision of what effectiveness would look like in your organization. What sort of impact does your ethics program aim to achieve? Uh, this may seem easy, but in my experience, it's, it's anything but. Um, when I ask ethics program managers about a program's mission or its purpose, many will say something like education, consultation, and policy. But those don't describe a program's mission, but really they're the program's activities. Ethics programs should be asking themselves, why are we doing education, consultation, or policy work? What is the end result we're looking for? And what would that look like? How would we know um, if and when we're, we're successful at achieving that? The mission or purpose of a program can be described in a variety of different ways. It might be um, some of the language that I've used in, for example, at the National Center for Ethics in Healthcare, the Department of Veterans Affairs, where I used to um, be director, um, we talked about promoting ethical healthcare practices. And we also talked about improving ethics quality in healthcare. Or you could simply say to create a more ethical organization. All of these are broad statements of results of an ethics program that would lend themselves to the development of concrete management objectives. So with any of these, you could have specific ethical practices or specific aspects of culture or specific things your program is doing to achieve quality. Mary, how about you? Sometimes the ethics question, oftentimes the ethics question we're asked to answer is not the one that needs to be answered. And I think that's also an ethics impact Um, that we are able to help discern with the requester what is the most appropriate, most necessary, most impending question that that we need to answer. 
Mark, how about you? Be willing to not ask the question, how can I have the most impact? And reshift or shift that framework to say, what do I need to be a, what do I need to be a part of such that ethics has the most impact? Right. And in our context, Catholic healthcare ethics has the most impact. That immediately should shift one's thinking to um, I'm not going to say mistake, but I think the short-sightedness maybe that I had early on, maybe just because of where our field was at, but it was all impact metrics basically on an assessment of the work I was doing, <laughs> right? Um, and realized pretty quickly that if I want to have a set of metrics that are, that's going to tell our story, and in its early iteration, our meaning the ethics committee story, how we all do this work together, I would say the first thing is to drop the eye. When I think about uh, ethics impact, I think about how is ethics a member of the transdisciplinary team? And I'm really intentional about using the word transdisciplinary as opposed to interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary tends to be, I'm the expert and I show up at rounds and I say what my expertise is and then I'm quiet until it's my turn. Transdisciplinary is something that ethics has always done, which is integrating the best of science and medicine and law and theology and philosophy and bringing it to the forefront so that we can engage in preventive action and not just reactive action. And so when I think about the impact that ethics can make, it's moving us from where we used to be with issues of um, ethical dilemmas to thinking about how to stave off those sorts of ethics dilemmas, particularly at the bedside. And now as we're better understanding that every organizational dysfunction is what leads to clinical ethics dynamics. And so where can ethics have an impact on the organizational level? And then again, as we think more broadly in terms of persons who are outside of the our brick and mortar walls of hospitals, health systems, ambulatory care settings, and then into the community. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.